It's one of the crazy making things for me about social change that the people and the organizations who are doing the work of making the world better should live on scraps. That if you're doing this work, you should not only do good, but you should give your all. And yet this is a mindset that's endemic both inside and outside the nonprofit and social change sectors. Look, I'm really not saying that being part of an NGO should be a route to being a millionaire. But surely the question is, what will fuel sustainable impact? And I don't think a scarcity mindset is going to enable that sustainable impact. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read two pages from a favorite book. I'm that MBS, Michael Bungay-Stanier, and my guest today is Nell Eggington. She is an author and a speaker who has spent her 25-year career innovating in the social change sector. She's a champion for reinventing social change with abundance at its heart. But that doesn't mean it's thinking it's all Enya music and unicorn burps. You have to start by seeing what's really going on. All of our systems are broken. The way money flows to people is broken. The way we take care of each other is broken. Our healthcare systems, education systems, all of these systems are broken. Um, and they're broken because we don't see each other as equal and we don't see a need to take care of each other as equals. I don't know if you've ever been part of the social change sector, but it really can wear on a person. You work tirelessly only to see lackluster results and always this resistance, this real resistance to change. But it was in the election of 2016 when Nell had her own dark moment. I, I went to a really a dark place. I took a break from writing and speaking and just kind of tried to find, you know, my way back to, to social change and to feeling like <laughs> there, was, there was a positive momentum in the world. And I found Tara's book, along with lots of other books, but hers was particularly resonant for me because I felt like it was a call for all of us. She speaks particularly to women, but it's really, I think, a call for all of us who feel compelled to create a better world to step into that leadership role. The author she references is Tara Moore, and the book is Playing Big. And during her sabbatical, Nell uncovered a startling truth about what was really standing in the way of getting herself back to the work she loved. No one else was in the way of the social change I wanted to create. Only I was in my way. Um, and so I started to, and I, I didn't have the answers when I came back from my sabbatical. It, it Honestly, it took me many more years after that to really figure it all out. And writing the book was part of that process. Um, but, you know, I figured out nothing's standing in my way. Trump's not standing in my way. You know, <laughs> nothing's standing in my way. It's really um, my mindset. And so there was a shift that I needed to take. And, and honestly, it's from scarcity to abundance. From a mindset of scarcity to one of abundance. So tell us all about why that matters in the social change sector. But first, here's Neil Eglinton reading from Tara Moore's book, Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead. The past was a world defined, designed, and led by men. The future, we hope, will be a world defined, designed, and led by women and men. The present is the transition. Those of us born into this time were born into a unique and remarkable historical moment, a moment of in-between, 
That means you and I and all the women we know have in a sense been hired for a very important global transition team. When I give a talk, I often ask each woman to turn to the woman next to her, look her in the eye and say, you've been hired for the transition team. And then I ask the women listening to really let that sink in. The historical moment we live in can feel so confusing. We're told things are mostly equal now, but the equality isn't translating into the results it should. Like a critical mass of women in leadership, girls feeling confident about themselves and their bodies, women being physically safe walking down the street. When we understand our moment as one of a major transition that will take decades to enact, and when we see ourselves as forgers of that transition, things shift. We can focus on how we wanna help move the transition forward, and we can feel less wounded and frustrated by the myriad ways the transition is not yet complete. We can also feel honored and grateful to be alive at this transitional moment and to be stewards of it. Today, women have access to participate in a public life, a professional life, and a political life that is not yet reflective of women's voices or women's ways of thinking, doing, and working. That means that as we participate in those realms, we'll often feel like outsiders, like strangers in a strange land. It's our job to not run away from that, but instead take up our small piece of the transition team's work, sharing our ideas, our voices, our callings in a way that is authentic to us. By so doing, we'll create a more balanced, sane culture, one reflective of both men's and women's voices. That means that whether you signed up for it or not, you will be a revolutionary. You will be a revolutionary because any woman who is being authentic in her work will bring forth ideas and ways of working that run counter to the status quo of her company, industry, community. A status quo defined by masculine values and masculine ways of working. You don't have to intend to be a change agent. When a woman truly begins playing big according to what that means to her, she becomes one naturally. The tools you've learned on this journey can certainly help you succeed better in traditional ways within traditional systems, but they are most potent as tools to assist you in doing your transition team work. Let them strengthen your ability to be an agent of change. In the minds of women around the globe lie the seeds of the solutions to climate change, poverty, violence, corporate corruption. For me, in the end, the bottom line is this. In millions of communities, organizations, companies, and families, women know what needs to be done. Playing big is doing it. Wow, that's great! a great call to action. And for me, what really spoke is this idea of actually not only are you on the transition team, but you are a revolutionary. That's what it means. Um, and I'm curious to know how that landed with you when you heard that, which is like, actually, now you're a revolutionary. Is that a, is that a label you're comfortable with? Or is it kind of take a while to adjust to it? Or is it actually not one that you've taken on? Oh, I'm totally comfortable with it. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like I've always... I've always been a revolutionary. I mean, in high school, I, I created a, a feminist um, group that was very controversial. But I've, at points in my life, I have sort of stepped back from that sort of revolutionary change agent um, mode because I got scared. 
And so when right. I found this book, I think I was in one of those moments where I was scared and I was stepping back and I didn't know deer in the headlights. Um, so to me, it was very much a call to action, very much sort of a wake up call to, to return to those revolutionary roots. I, uh, you know, this call to be a change agent, it's so important. It's so hard. <laughs> I've tried to do change in various ways for 30 years myself. Like you, I've had a career about that same length. And, um, you know, I, I, I would look, I would say most of the stuff that I've tried to change hasn't changed that much. I, I've probably got more scars than I have trophies as part of this journey. What do you feel you know now about change and being a change agent than that you might not have known before? What's, what's wisdom that's become kind of apparent to you? Well, I think the first, firstly, most importantly, what I kind of said, alluded to earlier is that it starts with you. It starts internally. Yeah. I think so often I see this with um, leaders I work with and I saw it in myself, I probably still do at times is that change happens out there. You know, it's, right. it's everyone else is messing up. That's, that's why we've got all these problems in the world. But really, truly, change starts with you. And right. so if you can take time to, to go inside and get your own stuff <laughs> figured out, right? And right. then exude that kind of change um, out into the world, that, for me, has been transformational. Um, I, I, you can just witness, even in a room, you can see the energy shift. If you can get your right. own energy figured out, you can really start to shift the energy in the room. And I, and I, I do this with my clients in board meetings and, you know, and, and other things. Um, so I really think it starts internally and we need to stop sort of looking outside to see the change we want. So how would you say that? you've you're internally realigned or better or differently aligned to make that change i mean what shifted in you I, I get that move into the darkness and then out of the darkness again but how else have you shifted in terms of who you are as a person and as a woman doing this work um mm -hmm. so that you're better able to embody you know as gandhi says be the change you want to see in the world how how have you shifted to be that change well first of all i would say it is an ongoing process. Uh, you know, I'm absolutely a work in progress. And I would also say, um, you know, that it's taken me years uh, to, to kind of come to this realization. And then it's a realization that I try to remember and put in practice every single day. But, yeah. you know, I've, for starters, I just do very uh, practical and tactical things, which is I give myself space every day. So I take an hour long walk every day. I meditate for 20 minutes every day, write in my journal every day. Um, I, I read by myself before I go to sleep. You know, I, I do things that create space and time for me to kind of reconnect with that right. inner um, knowing or intuition or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's that's uh, practice. And, and the days when I don't do those things, I completely see a shift back to kind of right. my old ways of stress and, you know, feeling the burdens of the world and all of those things. Now, how do you balance that commitment to self-reflection, self-management, self-growth, self-care, all of that with something that you said earlier, which is, you know, our systems are broken. 
And um, I always struggle with this trying to figure out, look, I get the power of self-development and self-growth and self-nurture, but I sometimes worry if what that means is we have a lot of individuals doing meditation and sleeping well and taking walks, and in doing so, they're not actually putting the attention on how do we actually reinvent some of these fundamentally flawed systems that have structured our, our world in a way that doesn't promote abundance and equity. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think it's a balance. Um, so in, in my own case, um, I do the self-reflection and the self-care and all of those things so that I can step into the arena by writing right. this book, by um, blogging and speaking. And, you know, I view my role as a change agent for the social change sector. I, I think my role is to call BS on things that I see going on in that particular sector. My role isn't to solve democracy or solve education or, or any of those <laughs> things, but I think- Or both of those. If you could maybe, knock both of those off in the next yeah, couple probably. of years, that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, but really, you know, I, I see my role as sort of um, picking at a particular system. In my case, it's the social change sector. So how we fund and support efforts to to fix these other broken systems. Um, you know, my role is is to to demonstrate where that's gone wrong to where, to right. places we are you know focusing on scarcity instead of abundance, places where we are not doing equitable um, treating things equitably. Um, so it's the, it, I think it's really the combination of the two, the self-care, the yeah. self-reflection that allows you to then step into the arena. And then when it gets really rough, you go back to the self-care and then, you know, you go back in again. So what is it that drives you nuts about the social change sector at the moment? I'm sure after 25 years, there are just some things that make you go, okay, we've got to, We've got to sort this out. Um, so much, <laughs> but, <laughs> but honestly, fundamentally, the, the people that are working in the social change sector, you know, for the most part are amazing people. Right. They have these tremendous visions for, you know, a better world. They believe in equity, you know, they believe in a healthy planet, all of these very admirable things, yet they are held back both by themselves and by the inequitable structures. The way, for example, the way we fund social change is so broken. The idea of treating it as a charity where you just kind of throw pennies at these massive social problems, that's that in and of itself is just so, so broken. Um, so that's a big thing that I focus on is let's get money flowing to social change the way it flows to Amazon and Facebook and right. <laughs> all these other places. So I know that's part of your book is, is resetting relationship with money. Um, is that something you had to do yourself in terms of coming to grips with how money works in your life before you then took it into the social change sector? Absolutely. And again, still a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I think we all suffer from the scarcity mindset, particularly in our own finances, right? It's money yeah. is a scary thing. Um, yeah. And so, yes, I, I often say I wrote this book to myself first Yep. And then it's a gift, you know, to the sector as well. But all of the things that I talk about, how you need to shift that mindset, I, I have to repeat them to myself all the time or go back and read sections. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> exactly. We write the book that we need to read. Exactly. Um, so what have you learned about abundance? 
first of all, that it's possible. So I, I grew up, like I think a lot of people did, having no idea the concept, the concept of abundance. Like, what, what is this thing? Um, yeah. and so I, I grew up very much steeped in the idea of scarcity. So first of all, that it's possible. And then second of all, that it's there for you if you just start to shift your belief that it's possible. And if you start to shift that belief and start to move your actions towards that, abundance will come to you. And it's, it's actually quite easy once you start to move in that direction. Um, I had a, a client um, a few years ago that, that came to me. They were really struggling national membership um, organization. Uh, they had only three staff. They had almost gone out of business a couple of years prior to that. Um, they knew they wanted to be doing more in their space, but they just struggled to kind of, you know, move forward. They were very much stuck. Mm. Um, so I worked with them. I did an overall assessment and kind of laid it out for them, essentially how they were completely stuck in scarcity. They, you know, refused to invest in the organization. They refused um, to to do things differently in terms of fundraising and to uh, to to think about their work in a much bigger way, they refuse to even invest in a strategic plan. And a strategic right. plan, at least in my my world, is the a, a big key to abundance. Because if you can chart a future course that you're really excited about, get other people excited about it, you know, abundance flows to that. So they were hesitant to kind of do any of those things. So I worked with them over uh, a couple of years. Finally, got them to create a strategic plan. They got very excited about it. Um, you know, did some coaching after that. And now they are in a place, they are about to move to um, close to 12 staff members. They tripled their budget. And most importantly, they just have a much bigger impact um, on the space that they're in. Um, and, And it's just really exciting to watch. And it's all because they were willing to make that shift from scarcity to abundance to really start to invest in themselves, to think bigger, to believe that it was possible. How do you, I mean, that, that insight around investing in yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm not part of the sector, but I kind of watch it a little bit. And, you know, one of the more pernicious measurements I feel is like how much of my donation is goes to the cause and how much is used to run the organization. And there's always that, let's, let's find the organization that costs the least to run. And I'm always like, is that, is that actually the best metric? <laughs> because, you know, investing in your organization then increases capacity and courage and ambition. So an investment there plays off in the longer run. How do you support people to make the investment in themselves? Um. I will say it's challenging. There has to be there has to be some sort of opening there. There has to be a willingness, and and often I think it's that people and organizations have to get to such a point that they finally surrender and say, you know what, the status quo, the way we've been doing this, it's just not going to work anymore. There's got to be a better way, and just that slight shift of thinking maybe there's something else that can start to open the door to abundance. But when you are so stuck, when you are so resistant to, to doing things differently, then, you know, I think you're going to stay there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, uh, from the two pages that you read, is uh, Tara Moore is talking about, welcome to a transition team. 
this is exciting. We're in this moment of change. You know, in the past is institutions that aren't influenced by women's actions and women's thinking and women's kind of moral compass. And in the future lies a system where it's a shared stage, shared power, shared influence in terms of structures that reflect both men and, and women's thinking. I think that's the, what I heard in the two pages you read. But it's in the future. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's not, an, it's not, it's not, we're not talking 2024 uh, when this, when this gets sorted out. Um, so part of what I heard when I heard you read those two pages is, you know, this transition team is a bit of a long-term commitment. It's not got a short-term payoff. How do you build resilience to keep doing this work now? I mean, I'm curious what nourishes you and keeps you going, knowing that there's not an easy win in the near term around some of this bigger stuff. Probably the the biggest thing is um, my clients, the people I work with, and the, the just the the other social change leaders I see out there. I mean, these are some of the most passionate, committed, selfless uh, people. And so, to me, they're honestly they're the model. I mean, I mm. I have worked with people that have been doing the work they've been doing for. 20, 30, 40 years, right? Yeah. And in times where we weren't even close to even the transition part of, right. of the work, right? Where they were just slogging through just because they simply knew like this had to get done, right? Right. And so that to me is incredibly inspiring. And so when I, you know, when I get ugh, frustrated, what is going on? When is this stuff going to change? You know, I look to people like that and, and you know, historical figures as well who, you know, are, are dead. So they're not going to see the transition for sure. Right. <laughs> but, you know, they laid the groundwork um, for, for where we are now and, and for um, the progress that we've already made. Um, so that's I guess that's what inspires me. Do you, do you have any kind of role models from the past who you look to and go this person and the way that they did their thing or, or, or live their lives that you kind of draw upon or you look to? Yeah. So, I mean, I have very public um, inspirational figures like Eleanor Roosevelt and Martin Luther King and things like that. But then I have yeah. also very quiet sort of behind the scenes um, inspirational folks. Like one of my favorite people in the world is Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who was the oh, wife. I don't, I don't know who this person is. She's the wife of Charles Lindbergh. Right? right, first, first in flight. No one really knows much about her, but she was a phenomenal writer. She wrote many books um, and was also a pilot. She um, was co-pilot with him on a lot of his um, flights, kind of charting the the um, airline flights now, the modern airline yes. patterns. Um, but she also um, kept uh, voluminous um, diaries and letters. Um, and so she's got like five volumes of these. But she's just a really very thoughtful um, uh, woman that sort of struggled with this public-private role, struggled with she also had five children while she was a writer and did all these other things. And so she just um, is just an amazing person who, um, you know, just was able to do so many things and, and just, uh, I find her incredibly inspiring and no one really knows much about her. I love that. I've never heard of her before. I've obviously Charles Lindbergh I've heard of, but not, not, uh, and, uh, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, is that her uh -huh. name? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what do you draw from her 
that you kind of take into the way that you think about or, or manage your own life? Well, she, um, it, it, mostly I, I love her diaries and letters because right. you get such a personal understanding of her struggles. And I feel yeah. like her struggles mirror mine so much because she, you know, went back and forth between her private family life and then her kind of her public roles and the things that she was trying to create in the world, all the books and things that she was trying to do. And the struggle between them and always wondering, am I doing enough? Is this good enough? Am I a good enough mother? Am I a good enough writer? Am I, you know, a good enough public figure, you know, kind of things I'm trying to accomplish? And just this constant struggle, constant sort of self-effacing you know, challenging um, herself and in her role, um, I just find very comforting because, <laughs> because you know, I, I have all of those same kind of internal conversations and to see someone else have it there. And, and but at the same time, <laughs> to be so inspired by that woman, right, right. Um, it's, it's kind of comforting. <laughs> so now, how do you, what are you ambitious for now? I mean, is that, it's wonderful to have a book out in the world. I've actually got it with me here in Australia because I looked at it on the plane on the flight here. And um, it, in, in a sense, it's a milestone in itself where you kind of like pop a bottle of sh champagne and go, this is amazing. <laughs> I've got a, a book out in the world. I know that journey because I've walked it myself a few times. So I know just what an accomplishment it is to have a book out in the world. It's a big thing. Um, but I'm curious to know now how you what ambition you claim for yourself? Well, so I, I wrote the book um, to start a conversation in the sector. As I said, I, I feel that I'm a change agent for the social change sector. One of many. Yeah. Um, I think there are many uh, kindred spirits of mine. Um, but so I think my role going forward is to get the message of the book to be absorbed by the sector. And so, you know, I, right. I totally understand everybody's not going to read my book. Probably not even a ton of people are going to read my book. So it's up to me through speaking and trainings and, you know, all the other things to take that content, take that message and help people access it in, you know, whatever way it works for them. So that's kind of my next journey. Yeah. And if you were to point to two or three things that you're like, okay, the, the overall message i mean the title is reinventing social change and the subtitle which is kind of the the core message i guess embrace abundance to create a healthier more equitable world if you were to give me then like okay but what are the three key ways that i might think about doing that for people who are like okay i haven't read a book yet but maybe i should what are the three key messages mm -hmm. that that come through from the book so the first one is to recognize that you are far more powerful than you think you are and to really start to step into that power, embrace it. Um, and that goes back to what I was talking about earlier is like, you know, find the power within kind of center yes. within that's where change starts. Um, the second thing is to make money your friend. I think so often in the social change sector, we despise money. We fear it. We, <laughs> we just have this we very, kind of bad mouth yeah, yeah. very dysfunctional relationship with money, but money is an incredible tool for social change. So you really want to embrace that and get super cozy with money. And then the third thing is um, to mobilize your networks. I think so often social change leaders isolate themselves and just put the whole burden on their own backs. But there are so many people out there, both inside your organizations, but then outside in the world that want to help 
that believe in your mission and want to see it move forward, but you need to access them, direct them, embrace them, nice. all of those things. And so it's how you mobilize those networks for the change you want to see. So can you tell me a, a, a time when you mobilized your network for greater effect, or maybe you helped a client do the same? Um, oops, sorry. Yeah. Um, so I worked with a client in, um, in the democracy space. It's a, it's a space I work uh, in a lot here in the U.S., um, how we create a stronger democracy and all the things that go into that. Um, so I worked with an organization that was, you know, a single organization that had a mission related to a stronger democracy, but like so many organizations really kind of isolated themselves, felt the burden, the competition for funding, you know, all of those things that kind of isolate nonprofit organizations and worked with them to map, um, you know, the external networks out there, who they could tap into, who had similar missions, who the funders were, who partners were, influencers, policymakers, you know, all of those sorts of things, and and created a strategy to start to, to tap into those. And really, it's as simple as picking up the phone, you know, getting in front of people, reaching out, saying, here's what we're trying to accomplish. You know, right. where do you see some overlaps with your work? How can we be helpful to you? How can you be helpful to us? And just kind of doing the work of creating that network. And it's amazing um, to see how that transforms this organization. Uh, you know, now they have this, you know, partners in all kinds of different arenas, different sectors, you know, greater funding, you know, all of these things happen when you start to see the world out there as, you know, potential partners and collaborators, as opposed to competitors and, you know, fearful uh, of them, et cetera. It's very interesting that, that this idea of activating your network, I think um, this happens at scale for so many of us, you know, individually and for our organizations as well, which is we just don't tap into the people that we know. And, you know, you get to a certain age, like I'm now, I'm not old, but I'm not young anymore either. And I'm like, it turns out I know a bunch of people. <laughs> and I know if I don't know them directly, I know how to get to them. I was talking to a friend of mine just over the weekend, and he's um, he's uh, in a career change. He's quite senior in a in a newspaper. And he's like, I don't know how to do this, what to think about. I'm like, so correct me if I'm wrong, but don't don't we both mutually know a brilliant executive coach, um, a brilliant CEO who's like in that role, so you can understand what that role looks like. This person, that person, and he's like. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think I do know those people. Yeah, you did. We went to school together with them, and um, I'm thinking if he, as a as a you know, a person who holds lots of privilege cards around being white and male and straight and cis and successful and and financed, um, finds it hard to tap into his network. How hard it must be for others to actually go. I have permission to reach out and ask for help and make connections. Absolutely. And and that's really the key hurdle, I think, is the asking for help. Because, you know, we all feel, I think there's such an ethos, um, you know, in Western culture to, to you know, we can do it alone. We're, you know, we can, we're independent, you know, we, we don't need to ask for help. And it's, it's really the opposite is true. As soon as you open yourself up to help, as soon as you say, 
you know, hey, you know, can we meet? Can I, can we sort of share um, or, or find yeah. opportunities for partnership or that sort of thing? As soon as you do that, magic happens. That abundance, you know, really can flow. Tell me a story about that. Was there a moment when you or somebody, you know, your work kind of made that bold reach out for help and it made a real difference? Well, I will tell you, I'm, I am being forced to do that right now with my book, right? Because, right. <laughs> and it's, it's hard. I, again, I'm a work in progress. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's hard to, so I'm sending, you know, individual emails to people in my network. Hey, I just wanted to let you know, you know, just wrote a book. Here's what it's about. I'd love to find opportunities to partner. You know, here's some ideas. Let's talk. Um, and it's so scary to send each one of those emails or calls right. or, you know, whatever it is, yeah. but it's amazing what I get back from that. You know, I've, okay. I've been invited on, you know, all kinds of different podcasts and webinars and invited to do op-eds and, you know, all kinds of things. And it's, it's phenomenal, but every single time it's scary to put yourself out there and to ask for help. At mbs.works, that's the home of this podcast and things like our membership site, The Conspiracy. Our goal is to help people be a force for change. So you know why I really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, I'm just certain that if we have more people doing more in big ways and small to help make this world be more fair, more equal, more inclusive, I mean, more human, then that's the arc of history bending towards justice. But you know, justice can feel a long way off at times. And that's why in this conversation, the idea of a transition team really struck a chord for me. You might not identify as a revolutionary or an activist or a change agent, but I hope you could sign up to be part of a transition team. I hope, in the words of Jacqueline Novogratz, you can find your way to give more to the world than you take. You can find out more about Nell and the work she does at socialvelocity.net. It's .net, not .com. Socialvelocity.net. And she is on Twitter at N-Eggington. That's at N-E-D-G-I-N-G-T-O-N. And thank you for listening to Two Pages with MBS. Look, I'm hoping you're enjoying these podcast episodes. I love producing them. There's a ton of work that's being put into them. But here's the thing. If you're not part of our free membership community, you're missing out on some of it. You're missing out on transcripts. You're missing out on free episodes or unreleased episodes. Why is it called the Duke Humphreys, you might ask? Well, it's named after my favorite Oxford library. Um, I went to Oxford University and people spoke of Duke Humphreys with a whispered breath because that's where the really important, the really ancient, the really beautiful books were. You'll find our Duke Humphreys at mbs.works slash podcast. And podcasts grow best by word of mouth. So if my conversation with Nell has struck a chord with you, if you can think of one other person who might be thinking, yeah, I need abundance. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in being on a transition team. Yes, I'd like to be nourished by my work in social change. Yes, I'd like to be a force for change. Then let them know about the episode. Pass the word along if you wouldn't mind. More subscribers means I get more leverage to try and invite cool people to the show. And if I get cool guests, well, we all win. And of course, if you get a chance to rate and review a podcast, it's what all of us podcast hosts desperately want. Affirmation. We have fragile egos. So if you go to your favorite podcast app and give us some stars, write something nice, that would be marvelous. <laughs>